What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner, and today I'm going to react to a recent podcast that Jeff Schneider was on, uh, the TIP podcast. Let me get the title of it. It's the one with uh, Preston Pish. It is the uh, Investors Podcast Network. This specifically is with the Trey host. Um, as you can tell, I don't watch this podcast or listen to it very much, but uh, I was sent this by someone in my community on Discord, and so I had to respond to it. I am a big Jeff Schneider follower. Um, I don't agree with him on 100% of things, and that will come out in this podcast, but I have interviewed him twice or three times now for the FedWatch podcast with Bitcoin Magazine. Um, great guy. Uh, all of this is a critique of his ideas and not critique of the man. He is a fellow uh, Floridian here, down here in the great free state of Florida. But anyway, so I thought I would respond to this and go through my reasonings for uh, my criticisms of Jeff Schneider's thoughts on Bitcoin. So that's what's coming up. If you guys want to support the show, go to BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Uh, you should be there. If you're listening to this, you should be there and signed up for the free weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. It's the best Friday newsletter in Bitcoin. I cover all of the main topics of the week from all sectors of Bitcoin, like mining, uh, price, uh, even altcoins I throw in there. Uh, and I have a market commentary section that I'm really enjoying writing every week. So check that out, bitcoinandmarkets.com. Sign up for the free tier. If you want to support me, you can sign up to become a member. Uh, if you're a member there, then you can watch this episode and most of my future episodes I will be putting out as video versions. Uh, so if you are a member over on bitcoinandmarkets.com, you can get that as well as I'm, I'm started a recent Telegram channel uh, to just be like a stream of consciousness and uh, linking a bunch of stuff that I uh, follow. And if you are a member, you will be able to comment on that channel. So anyway, check out BitcoinandMarkets.com for all the associated information. All right. So Jeff Schneider, TIP podcast. Do I need to set up anything else for this? Um, it is about 34 minutes into the podcast where I'm starting because the first part is all about the euro dollar system and just describing that. If you're a listener of this show, you probably know all that because I have uh, covered it in the past and I've interviewed Jeff and, and all of that. So um, we don't need to rehash that. But this is going to be just the section on Bitcoin that I want to cover here. So let's go over there and start it up. Obviously, a lot of this narrative that you're putting forth, which, you know, for lack of a better name, is flying directly in the face of a lot of narratives used around things like Bitcoin, where the expectation is that we're losing reserve currency status and the dollar is depreciating and people are going to flock to something that is finite and is going to be a better store of value. And, you know, they're going to build things on top of it to make it more of an interoperable currency. But... Am I wrong to suggest that you're probably not as bullish on Bitcoin or walk us through how this plays into your narrative? 
the narrative that's driving cryptocurrency interest and investment is that it's the wrong one. It's the idea that the dollar is going down in value. But as we said before, the dollar keeps going up, not down. And so every time we have these periods where the dollar sort of goes down for a little bit, like in 2017, for example, everybody says, okay, that's, this is the dollar crash. Here it comes. And everybody piles into crypto because they've been told you need to protect yourself against the dollar crash. But then 2018, the dollar continues to start suddenly goes higher in the middle of 2018. And you think, well, wait a minute, the dollar didn't crash. It's going the other way. We're not seeing an eruption of, of currency. We're seeing the exact opposite. We're seeing deflationary money break out all over the global economy and everybody piles out of crypto. Okay. So a couple things here. First off, yes, he is calling it crypto. And I have to mention that first because, and he laughs about this later. Um, but this is a, a very big point that to make the argument that he's making, he must lump Bitcoin in with altcoins. And it is a strictly a unwillingness to accept the uniqueness of Bitcoin. And that's not my opinion. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. Because Jeff is going to go, he's already gone through 2018, 2017, 2018. Uh, and he's about to go through 2020 through 2022, but he doesn't mention that Bitcoin is much higher. So that bottom in 2018 was 3000. Right now, the bottom that we've had recently is seven times higher than that bottom. And you go back, you zoom out, and it's that case that way all throughout the history of Bitcoin. So if to make the argument that he's making, he must lump Bitcoin in with all other altcoins. So that's the first point. Uh, second point is he crosses his reasoning here a little bit. So um, he's saying that people get into Bitcoin because of this inflationary uh, thesis. And I agree that that inflationary thesis is dangerous for Bitcoin. And I've talked about this in depth for months and months and months. And now we're seeing this kind of uh, come to fruition here a little bit. Um, but the inflationary thesis is dangerous for Bitcoin. Jeff says that's why people are getting into Bitcoin. But later, he says that people are getting into Bitcoin because of a dollar shortage. And I agree with the second half of this argument, because if you zoom out to 2011 or so, because that's when Bitcoin got its first, uh, you know, exchange rate. Then the dollar has been up since then, along with Bitcoin. They go in the same direction. It's a stair step up for the dollar and it's a stair step up for Bitcoin. So I agree with his late latter half of his reasoning, but the he has a contradiction here between the first half of his reasoning and the latter half. So let's keep going. Repeat in 2020, 2021, everybody, oh, the dollar's going to crash this time for sure. Have you seen what the Fed does? Have you seen what the federal government has been doing? And everybody piles into the crypto assets because the dollar's going to crash at this time for sure. We're, we're, we're telling you it's going to crash. Just, you'll just wait and see. But so he's mixing up the reasoning behind Bitcoin 
because Bitcoin is fixed supply. It has delivered on everything it's promised to do, you know, um, fixed supply, 10 minute blocks, censorship resistance, and it is delivered on that where all, all coins have not delivered on anything that they have promised. And so it's always the next upgrade. It's always the next uh, over the hill, like all this, these features that are coming for altcoins. These are just Ponzi schemes, you know. Uh, I wouldn't lump Bernie Madoff in with Apple stock because they're completely different. So Bitcoin is the one that is has this inflationary narrative around it. The altcoins don't. They they actually actively fight against the sound money thesis and the inflationist uh, dogma because, like Ethereum. They have an unrestricted supply. That's not part of their value proposition. At least it wasn't in the beginning. The supply thing, it was a Ponzi scheme. It still is. So are all these other altcoins. So the, the only part of the system, the only part of the Bitcoin space that is has this inflationary narrative is Bitcoin. Now, I think that's dangerous and I think it's wrong. But... It's not at all what Jeff is saying here. Then it doesn't. The dollar starts to level off and continue higher. Then, of course, later in 2021, and especially in 2022, the dollar starts to skyrocket. And everybody says, well, wait a minute. We were told the dollar was going to crash. It's not crashing. It's doing something the opposite. No, oh, by the way, we just did this a couple of years ago. Suddenly, not as many people are interested in cryptocurrency anymore. So for my own personal view, a short run cryptocurrency, I think, again, has that they have the placebo effect in mind. They have this idea the Fed has. So they talked about the placebo effect earlier when it came to the Fed, because the Fed is pretty much impotent. It doesn't actually do anything. And so they compared it to the placebo effect. Now, that's not the case with Bitcoin. Obviously, it has a fixed supply and um, it is related to the reasoning behind why people are rushing to Bitcoin, which is not placebo. Okay, this is not a placebo effect. This actually has real world reasons behind it, which which Jeff will get into here. Has devalued and the federal government together have devalued the dollar, but you can never square that circle because the dollar never goes down. It only goes up over time. And so you have this influx of interest into crypto and then this outflow of interest into crypto. The way you square that circle is by just acknowledging that Bitcoin goes up. The same way the dollar goes up it has never gone below its previous cycle high except very recently but still then you have the the normal functioning of bitcoin is that it goes up along with the dollar that is that is the facts that is the empirical evidence it has nothing to do with inflow and outflow like if you just listen to jeff you would think that the highs uh have been pretty close to each other and the lows have been pretty close to each other and we just have this great volatility in and out now kind of true when you talk about the altcoin market some most of these altcoins do trend downward and they never get to new all-time highs but not for bitcoin bitcoin is different that's why we must separate uh, bitcoin from quote-unquote crypto so short run of this massive volatility in price, which is not what you want from a competing or an alternate currency system, which has kind of opened the door to other forms of crypto, like stable coins, which to me, 
Okay, so, well, my chair. Okay, so um, we don't want massive fluctuations in price. Um, sure we do. I, I don't know why we wouldn't want that. Now, we don't want that for the eventual, uh, the eventual place that Bitcoin is going to reach. But Bitcoin is on a monetization journey. This is the first time in recorded history that a brand new commodity or brand new thing has become money, has been monetized. Uh, we have different examples like where glass beads were used in Africa and then the Europeans came in with gold and silver. So it was a little bit different, but these gold and silver were monetized in Europe. Uh, there are some similarities with um, where gold took over for silver back at the beginning of the 19th century, but gold had been used for millennia before that. It just hadn't been the primary, primary money. Gold was money of kings and silver was the money of the people. But we've never had this happen. And so we're talking about the monetization process. Um, even the credit thing, Jeff might push back and say, well, credit-based dollars are new, but they're not really. I mean, they've always existed as fiduciary media on top of the gold standard. There's always a credit, uh, credit cycle. There was always a business cycle that had to do with expansion and contraction of credit. So no, that's not new. It actually got bootstrapped off of the gold standard and it grew because there was room for it to grow. But now as a credit-based money, we're at the end. We're at the end of this credit-based money. And he'll talk about this towards the end. Uh, towards the end of what he's saying here in the next few minutes. So I don't want to take all that thunder now, but um, credit-based money is different than commodity-backed money. Now, also, commodity-backed money is not a fixed supply. So Bitcoin has a fixed base money supply. There'll never be more than 21 million. But that doesn't mean there can't be credit on top of Bitcoin, right? Just like there can be credit on top of gold. There can be credit on top of Bitcoin, the only thing is the commodity-based money keeps the extremes in check and keeps the uh, elasticity from getting too low. Because when the elasticity, which he'll bring up here in a second, gets too low, we have a reset of the system with commodity-backed money. We cannot have a reset of the system with a pure credit-based money. Elasticity has no bottom in that case. So um, let's continue with this. I'll, I'll continue to comment here. Is Really, what, what's going on in cryptocurrency and digital currencies and DeFi and everything else has nothing to do with store of value. It's all about medium of exchange and elasticity. So if the general thesis in the... Okay, so Jeff is a brilliant uh, economist, a brilliant uh, market analyst, but he is obviously not into monetary theory because um, while it's... The you know, medium of exchange is the primary role of money. You cannot have medium of exchange without first having value. What are you going to exchange? First, you must get the value. Then you exchange the value, right? So medium of exchange comes after store value. And what we're seeing with Bitcoin is a monetization process where it's gaining value. And it is a store of value because like I said, every cycle low is higher. I just charted a daily chart with a 365 day moving average. 
and that moving the price fluctuates around that moving average, but it always goes up. Okay, so that is the monetization. Now, Bitcoin will never become, or Bitcoin cannot become a general use medium of exchange until it grows in market cap. And that is the monetization process that we're in right now. I don't know why Jeff can't expand the, um, the possibilities here. So Bitcoin can't serve very well as a general medium of exchange with a $1 trillion market cap. It just is not enough throughput. But if you get to a 20, $50 trillion market cap for, for Bitcoin, it can serve as a com, uh, competing medium of exchange. Right. And so that's what Bitcoin is growing to. And how does it get there? Well, Jeff will talk about how it gets there and I'll, I'll elaborate on what he's going to be saying here. But overall, yes, Bitcoin is not ready today. But that doesn't mean like go back and look at Bitcoin in 2011 when it was a dollar. It was nowhere near where it is today. It's providing so much more value, so much more throughput. Billions of dollars a day go through the Bitcoin network. We need hundreds of billions. We need trillions to go through the Bitcoin network. And that will come with the continued monetization, sucking store of value out of other assets into Bitcoin because of its fixed supply. Now, eventually it won't have a fixed supply, like I said. It will have a fixed base money supply, but it will have credit built on top of it. And that credit will be limited in the extremes that it can get to. It won't get to an out-of-control um, system that needs bailouts constantly needs stimulus quote unquote stimulus and all this to just help the credit continue going that's a thing here okay i don't know if i mentioned this already but um a credit-based system must continue to grow and that's maybe one difference i have here with jeff because he talks about this deflationary pressure all the time and i do too i think the overriding the primary force is deflationary Okay, but a credit-based system must continue to expand. There is money printing happening right now. There is inflation. I, I'm, I've never sat here and said that we are, in, we are deflating right now. I think we have deflationary shocks, and there is a deflationary pressure on top of a credit burden, an overriding credit burden, that cannot be unwound in a credit-based system. But we are printing money because credit is either growing or collapsing. And the way we kind of know how fast it's growing is by the interest rates. The general, say, take a general interest rate, a five-year interest rate. Not necessarily on treasury, but just a five-year loan. And that's about how much the uh, money supply has to be growing just to stay steady. There has to be that much money printing. So that's that's what I'm talking about in regards to uh, credit-based money and money printing. Um, we'll get into more with the elasticity. So let's continue. General condition in the monetary system, and I think I'm right about this. In fact, I'm really sure I'm right about this. Since 2007 is we have a shortage of money. We have an inelastic currency system. Historically speaking, whenever you have an inelastic currency system that doesn't supply the money that the economy needs to grow and be efficient, competing currencies will evolve because human beings are ingenious and digital currencies in the in the underlying basic fundamental capacities are ways to solve this inelasticity medium of exchange 
Okay, so see, he just switched his narrative. So first it was an inflationary thesis that caused these things. Now it's actually a dollar shortage, a deflationary thesis that caused these things. You can't have both. And I tend to believe the latter, that there is a deflationary dollar shortage that is having demand spill over into Bitcoin. Very simple. And have nothing to do with store value. So you have this. That's another thing with store value. Okay. Again, like I said, store value is primary. It is the thing that gets built during the monetization process. Then you cross the monetary chasm, as I call it, into being a medium of exchange. It already is a medium of exchange to a degree. Some people use it. Some people use Bitcoin. Billions of dollars, billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin go through the Bitcoin network every day. Some people, some people use it. But it is primarily in its store of value phase where it's sucking value. I wouldn't maybe call it store value. It is the value accumulation phase. It is the value accumulation. That's what Bitcoin is doing right now. And once it gets to a certain amount of throughput capacity, it can start being used in other things. You know, when, when banks can settle or countries or large corporations can settle billion dollar deals without moving the Bitcoin price, on the daily many different companies then bitcoin will start moving into that medium of exchange role okay let's continue competing tensions where digital currencies are evolving toward a medium of exchange that's useful in parallel or in competition to the euro dollar system but invest well it's not the cryptos or bitcoin is evolving towards a medium of exchange or these types of assets are evolving towards a medium of exchange. It's that the world is adapting a new media to a new medium of exchange. The world is adapting, not Bitcoin. Investors are, are taking the placebo and running with it and making and running wild with the, the cryptocurrency prices, which is sort of not what's going on in actual, you know, the development, the technology and innovation in the crypto space. So you have one thing that's sort of a long run trend where digital currencies are trying to solve elasticity in the medium of exchange where investors and speculators are running into cryptocurrency on the other side because they wrongly conclude that crypto is about store of value when it's really not. So, okay, there, there he's trying to alleviate this contradiction by separating two groups, long-term trend and speculative investors. Okay, that's how he's trying to clear up this contradiction, but it doesn't work because Bitcoin continually goes up. So one of those two has to lose out and it's a speculative investor side. So this is a growing store of value to meet a dollar shortage or monetary shortage. And that's so long run. I think there's value there. Long run, there's potential there even though the, 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 the prices have been extremely volatile and wild. And I think that, you know, they've been volatile and wild in one direction. Current prices in crypto are way overvalued because we don't really know what that elasticity solution might look like when we get to the long run. Okay. That's a subjective judgment, right? So he's saying that he knows that they're overvalued 
because uh, that is his subjective valuation of this. But obviously the market is telling you you're wrong because it continually stair steps forward. Now, if Bitcoin were to drop to 10,000 or 5,000 and stay there for extended years, number of years, then yes, we can all agree with that. Um, but most likely Bitcoin is going to continue on this stair step and cause the most pain for the most number of speculators, but it's going to continue to expand its uh, monetary accumulation, its, its uh, accumulation of value. Well, I want to be careful about lumping Bitcoin in with all crypto because I do think there are a lot of yeah. differences there. And <laughs> Yes, and the Bitcoin people hate that. <laughs> One of the billionaires we study a lot on the show is Ray Dalio. And Ray Dalio was just in Davos, again, pontificating on you know, the fact that cash is trash. And he was even propping up Bitcoin or, or promoting it a little bit more that he's become a big advocate seemingly over the last year or two. And he has also said that when you're comparing the dollar, for example, you have to compare it to financial assets, not just other currencies. And this is something that I think is, you know, sometimes left out of the debate. But if you look at this currency shortage that you're talking about, how do you then explain asset prices going up? I mean, it seems like there's more of an asset shortage, right? Whether the stocks even or the housing or et cetera, than there are say seemingly a dollar shortage. Well, you have the placebo effect of markets, as I said, but you also have, again, uh, small economics too, uh, especially in real estate in the United States. We haven't been building houses. We haven't been building enough apartments. We haven't been building enough of everything. So That's true. wealthy people who tend to be more liquid have been piling into assets based on the placebo effect, including cryptocurrencies, including digital currencies, as well as real estate, even though there's there's nowhere near as much real estate being built, especially on a population-adjusted basis, as there was in the 1990s, for example. Okay, so that is true. There's fewer homes being built. Um, but that's not the whole story here. This is an economic hurricane story. So during elevated times of risk, which is what a currency shortage is, it's an elevated counterparty risk. Uh, the credit is uh, not priced properly. At least uh, you can't get the right amount of interest for the risk that you're taking so you'd rather not lend any money so there's an increased amount of risk so where do where does lending tend to go because remember this is a credit-based system that must continue to expand at a basic rate so where is that expanded where's the expansion well the expansion is to higher credit worthy uh, people that are more credit worthy this includes Fortune 500s that want to buy back their own stock. That's a pretty good bet. Um, people that want to buy homes because it's collateralized. They, they, if they default, then at least the bank gets the home and can sell it and have some value there. Um, so that covers stocks. That covers real estate, bonds. There is um, less opportunity, too much risk. So you go into the safest, most liquid assets, and that's U.S. Treasuries bonds in general so um those those are why asset prices continue to go up because of the economic hurricane is increasing risk out there for everyone it has nothing to do with a placebo effect there is no such thing as a placebo effect i think they just kind of invented that in this podcast here but um no it's going up because of the risk out there and that risk will never be alleviated that's the thing you can never solve credit risk with more credit, period. 
All right, let's go. So you, again, you have the demand curve shift to the right, supply and elastic, and elastic prices have to adjust. As you said, there's an asset shortage, a liquid asset shortage that has spilled over into, into things like real estate. Um, it's but where does this shortage come from? This shortage comes from because other assets are getting more risky. So you're going to go into the safest, most liquid asset. So it's not that um, this, like, there's a contraction here. There's, there's, there is contraction during the, the peak acute phases of deflationary cycle. But it's not that, I, I don't know how to explain this, that um, so something that was liquid yesterday will be less liquid today. So if you're going for a flat line, like risk adjusted portfolio, then you're going to have to continually move into safer and safer assets because the risk is increasing. All right. It's no different than collateral and safe and liquid assets because in a safe and liquidity and illiquid environment, those are the things that are in demand. Those are the assets that are in demand yeah. when we don't, what That's we what don't saying. see is all the illiquid assets that don't get markets anymore, that don't get priced, that don't get the same sort of considerations that liquid markets do. So I think it's yeah. not necessarily the case. In fact, I know it's not the case that there's an oversupply of money propping up markets. There's an undersupply of assets because of that same problem. We have a global monetary liquidity problem that is forcing essentially the system to restrain itself and it's sort of a self-reinforcing spiral. Okay, see, that's the difference here. I believe that there is credit being created. I believe there is inflation, but it is lower than most people think. And it is not what CPI is measuring right now, okay? But you must have money printing in a credit-based system to avoid default, period. And where is that money printing concentrated? It's concentrated into these more safe and liquid assets. Exactly what Jeff is saying. So not only is the economic risk and the contagion uh, and the credit burden pushing people into safer, liquid, uh, safe and liquid assets, but that's also where the money is, the money printing is concentrated. So it's, it's a reinforcing cycle and you can't get out of it. You cannot change it. The only way you can change it is to default. Well, other governments, not the U.S. government, but other governments can change it by printing money like MMT style to get out of debt, which some will. But the U.S. dollar cannot do that because it is not controlled by the federal government. It's controlled by this world uh, network, as Jeff would say, a distributed network of banks. So let's go. And there's really no way out of it, at least no way under the current framework where yes. the Fed's not going to solve it. This, it's not going to solve itself. I mean, it's been Correct. 15 years. Uh, it's not going to just randomly fix itself one day or the other. And so you have this volatile system where we all run into one class or another over time based on mistaken identity, based on mistaken impressions, or as you said, Trey, based on nothing more than the placebo effect. All right. So in wrapping up here a little bit, I want to talk about the end game. And you know, if I'm talking with Brett and his milkshake theory, he says this is a story that ends badly. And, it, and you've kind of alluded to the same thing during this discussion. So 
what are we as an investors through your framework, what should we expect to come next based on what you know and what you're seeing happen in the markets? Well, there's any number of different ways this could, I mean, how does this, I mean, it's number one question I get all the time too, is how does, how does this all end? And I think the human mind, we immediately go to, well, the system just crashes and we have to reset from there. One of the things I've been saying, uh, and I've been saying this for a while now, um, I did a talk in Kansas city about this and, um, you know, we're, we're stuck in this deflationary credit system that we cannot allow to unwind. And so we'll continue to grind lower and lower, as Jeff is about to say. I just wanted to jump in here. Um, it'll continue to grind lower and lower until we change the money. And Jeff knows that. It's the money changing. It must, we must pivot from the old system to a new system. When, you know, the euro dollar itself provides us with another example, because the euro dollar system took over from a grossly malfunctioning system hardly anybody knew it did. In fact, it did its job so well, we transitioned from the 1960s and Trippin's paradox to the great inflation of the 1970s, which today people still understand what the hell happened in the 1970s either. Well, the reason why we were able to transition during the euro dollar system was because it used the US dollar. We didn't use a completely new form of money, which is what we're going to have to do now. I mean, there is a way to back the dollar with Bitcoin. You could set each dollar at, or $1 million per Bitcoin. That's what you could do. So you could bootstrap it off the, the term US dollar. Um, but back then, it shifted from a system that we already were familiar with. And it shifted in subtle ways at first, right? That's how it, it happened. If they were to go from the U.S. dollar in 1958 and to go to um, the United States peso in 1970, we would have noticed. But we didn't notice because it was subtle using the same unit of account. We didn't change the entire money. We just changed the, um, the store of value and the medium of exchange, but we did not change the unit of account. All right, let's continue. So it isn't necessarily the case that we should expect this dollar shortage to produce something like 2008 or worse. We'll never see another 2008 again. I don't even think we'll, we'll see a rash of bank failures or any bank failures because part of the problem here is that banks have been fortifying their own balance sheets so that they don't fail. They don't end up becoming Bear Stearns, which has deprived the entire system of monetary resources. So while banks are safe, we're left scrambling with the shortfall of money. So that doesn't necessarily mean we get into another banking crash or banking gross system or you know gross failure like that. It could just be we continue on this Japanification trend for a, quite a lot longer. I mean, how long did, has Japan been on its its current track? Going back to the early 1990s, as frightening as that is, you know, the, they're more than 30 years into this, and they're still going. I know what everybody says. We're not Japan. We're not the same type of system. We can't possibly be Japan, but it's 15 years already, and we've basically <laughs> replicated everything. Okay, I'm going to replay that because people talk about Jeff like he's a robot or something, but that was hilarious, guys. Watch his eyes move. This is just gold. Crack. 
going back to the early 1990s, as frightening as that is, you know, the, they're more than 30 years into this and they're still going. I know what everybody says, right here, we're not up. Japan, we're not the same type of system. You, we can't possibly be Japan, but it's 15 years already <laughs> and we've basically <laughs> replicated go, everything that Japan did as well as all the results in terms of financial as well as real economy outcomes as well, too. So it could be that we end up with another systemic rupture. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think we continue along to be uh, continue along being. Well, we will have a credit crisis or a financial crisis. Uh, Europe is headed that way. We will, the central bankers it will come to a point where they are staring into the abyss once again, just like they did in 2018 or sorry, 2008, 2019, 2020, they will be staring into the abyss and they will pivot. Um, that's, that will happen. Uh, but I agree that it's not going to be bank-centered. Uh, I think it's going to be sovereign-centered. And we're not dealing with that much time. I, I don't think we're dealing, like it's been how many years? 14 years since 2008. I don't think we have another 14 years. I think we have another maybe 10. But in that time, I do believe that Bitcoin's market cap will be high enough to start pivoting the system away. We must change the money, get away from credit-based system, and have Bitcoin take over. So um, I don't think we have another 14 years. Squeezed by lack of economic growth, lack of liquidity, lack of money. And then there's actually a number of potentially positive outcomes where we have one of these alternative cryptocurrencies or digital assets that actually does produce, you know, evolves a couple more steps, a couple more orders of magnitude, it gets a couple or orders of magnitude better. And then we have a competing currency that just like the Euro dollar system does, slowly absorbs the roles of the monetary system over time so that we don't even- Ding, ding, ding. That's what I'm expecting. And it doesn't have to be that there is an evolution in bitcoin they're you know like orders of magnitude better coin he was saying there but bitcoin the the market will evolve to meet bitcoin bitcoin is here bitcoin is a solution all that needs to happen really honestly if bitcoin's market cap was 50 trillion today we would not be having this discussion people would be using it, it the banks would be using it they wouldn't need all these collateral things because they could settle in bitcoin over uh, 10 minutes across the world hundreds of billions of dollars so yes he's correct this is what's going to happen but we don't need an evolution of bitcoin we need an evolution of the market towards bitcoin bitcoin is sitting there ready to go and so find talking about this elasticity thing, uh, I just want to pound this home a little bit. So elasticity is um, provided by the credit market, the fiduciary media on top of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's base money will be fixed, will remain fixed, and the credit will be able to be on top of it. The problem here, the problem with the credit-based system is elasticity is disappearing and they can't get it back because that would necessitate letting a credit collapse happen. It's based, it's a credit based money. To get elasticity back, you must let the credit collapse, let it wash out, get rid of this debt burden, reset. They cannot do that. They will not do that as long as they can avoid it. 
all the foreign central banks would, will print money, literally MMT style, to avoid that. The US dollar doesn't have that luxury and it won't because if Bitcoin, like I said, goes to a $50 trillion market cap or you know in the ballpark, it will be a real competing currency at that point. And it is, has adjustable elasticity through fiduciary media on top of Bitcoin. I know that this is a uh, faux pas type comment to make in Austrian economics because half of the Austrian school hates fractional reserve banking. They hate fiduciary media. They hate credit. But that is 100% necessary. I 100% agree with that for multiple reasons, which I'm not going to get into now. But um, it will be provided on top of Bitcoin. How are they going to do that? The same way they did it with gold. They're, they're also, it's, you know, credit, extending credit happens everywhere in the economy. When a supplier delays taking payment from a retailer or a wholesaler or whatever they do, they are extending credit to that wholesaler. So we're going to see credit, you know, being extended by the market. It doesn't have to be bank-centered credit, but it will be bank-centered credit. People will make loans of Bitcoin and as long as you stay within their network, so you deal with um, businesses that bank with them or, you know, these banks will have uh, networks that as long as you stay within this network of banking, uh, maybe with four or five of these large banks, then you can extend credit, extend Bitcoin credit, etc. The thing is, elasticity can reset with Bitcoin. It cannot reset with a credit-based system. It will grind to the du- the dirt. It'll grind down to dust. We'll not, we'll not have any growth. We'll have this extens- extensive and suffocating debt burden over the entire economy that will spread contagion, uh, counterparty risk, um, everything throughout the global economy. There will be no growth, no inflation, deflationary overhang. That's, that is the future of the credit-based system. Bitcoin, like Jeff says, Bitcoin offers a greater amount of value in a value shortage time. So I don't call this necessarily a dollar shortage. It is a money shortage. It is a value shortage of liquid value. Okay. Now, Bitcoin right now can't fulfill that. But if Bitcoin price doubles, the amount of available liquid value within Bitcoin doubles. If it quadruples, that quadruples. It's a very simple formula. Very, very simple and secure and non-corruptible because there will be credit cycles in Bitcoin. It just won't get as bad and elasticity can reset. Okay, we're getting close to the end here. Let's continue. I don't even notice, hey, the euro dollar system just kind of disappeared or now we're doing this other thing. That's possible. It's it's. Maybe not the most likely scenario, I don't think but there's likely. really a spectrum of potential outcomes in between the really positive and maybe the real, not necessarily the worst negative, but um, somewhere in between where we could have, we continue on as we are, you know, we go through these recessions, lack of recovery, it kind of gets worse slowly over time, but we never seem to get out of it. I think eventually that, that, uh, that leads to a bunch of bad consequences, not necessarily in the marketplace, but more uh, re- dealing with social and political issues and anything else. And then there's- I agree with all that. Um, 
I just think that there's one thing for certain that this old system will end. The credit-based system will end. And it will go on to a form of natural elasticity and not managed, but naturally managed, naturally occurring elasticity cycles. We will learn our lesson from this credit-based system. It hasn't gotten bad enough, I don't think. Um, that's why it has to go on another 5, 10 years. But we'll get there. We'll get there. There's the possibility that somehow, some way, we actually do solve the euro dollar system, even if nobody's actually setting out to solve that particular problem, but it actually happens. And it's really difficult to say what is the most likely scenario, because in, you know, in some ways this is un unprecedented times, unprecedented problems where we don't really know. I'd like to be more long run optimistic than not, which is eventually we look at the problem in terms of and how it actually is stop looking at central banks and governments to try to fix it because they're not going to be able to and start looking at a realistic alternative maybe digital currencies or something like that i'd like to believe that we get to that scenario before something like you know 2008 happens again okay um also that that's it for this episode but i have one more comment is uh, about elasticity and price signals so i got into this back and forth on twitter i'm not going to bring it up right now but um Elasticity is good to a degree because credit is a necessary part of the market. We must have credit. Um, we will have credit. It's not an option. It's something that naturally evolves. So, um, But elasticity, uh, too much elasticity is bad because um, you have to, you know, like, stable prices he talks about stable prices we need to have stable prices a good money will have stable prices i disagree with that uh, a good a good money uh i guess hones the information within prices so prices can fluctuate they should fluctuate prices should fluctuate that's how we get information in the marketplace if apples double in value we have a good amount of information that we can use you know, especially if they double in value relative to other very similar items, right? So price fluctuations are extremely important. And if you have too elastic of a money, uh, you start minimizing this, these informational price signals and you make them less efficient to tell you the real world, what's happening in the real world in regards to capital goods, and demand, you know, um, allocation of goods and stuff. You the the disposition of the economy. You lose a lot of that information if your currency is too elastic. So, elasticity is good up to a point. The natural point. This is all holistic and natural. There will be credit on top of Bitcoin. Bitcoin will have elasticity. It just will not get to the extremes, and. Um, there's no other option. There's no other option. What are people going to stay in a desiccated economy based on the United States dollar that has massive overhang of debt and nobody can, you know, the, the market economy has totally lost any dynamism or are they going to slowly go over to this expanding value, this liquid expanding elastic value over here in Bitcoin land. That's where people are going to go. People are going to move to that. Now, how long does that take? Like I said, five, 10 years, probably something in that ballpark. I do not think that we have another 14 years worth of this. Maybe we do. 
maybe we do, that would be what, 28 years total? Right around the 30 year mark? Maybe, but I, I think it's gonna be a little bit faster than that. Uh, we're, we're gonna see a sea change here in the next couple of years um, as the globalists start uh, losing around the world. We have deglobalization and the Davos group goes out of power. We have a rise of national populism there's a ton of changes coming in the next five years and Bitcoin is going to be right at the center of that. So thanks for joining me guys. Thanks Jeff for letting me react to this and to the, the investment. What was this YouTube channel called the investors podcast network? Thanks for letting me use this fair use and I will catch you guys on the next one.